0: All right, I'm just going to check um, and invite you to see that you get one of the two handouts which were not placed by me, unfortunately, at the rack when you came in. There should be two handouts, and you might want to use one. One is quite big and bold. The other is, is simpler. We may not get to either of them, but if you have them now, we're better off. So see if they're coming around. If not, they're on a little rack down there. Um, and I, I will... Proceed. You can you can move freely around the cockpit or the cabin, not the cockpit. I wouldn't come in here today. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky subject, and I am um, attempting to take on a topic which would not have been one I would have, under any circumstances, chosen. So it's a very interesting task to see if I can do that. Uh, our catechist, for whom I to whom I owe more than the worth of my soul has had uh, a pressing task in another place. The world is his parish, and I support his ministry. But he said, you wouldn't mind to do the 8th of December. I said, what on earth is the 8th of December? And so I'm going to begin by asking you that question. Um, What do we normally celebrate today on the 8th of December in your your memory? (laughs) Pardon me? John the Baptist? That that could be, actually, and I, I wouldn't want to rule that out. But um, does anything else come to mind? Are there any other celebrations that typically happen in December? Well, I will give you a hint. We have a reference to a certain one of our saints on the screen, and uh, the title is somewhat archly called The Presumption of Mary, because many of uh, The celebrations which we have been given uh, for Mary's benefit by by the larger church and especially by our sister and our mother church, the Roman Catholic Church, um, presume upon a special kind of grace in us who are so used to looking at texts to find uh, some kind of validation for what we're doing. Now, you who have been through the process of the last six or seven months may wonder what all this business of texts is all about. And I'll briefly refer to the value of the text that we have and the canonically received texts of the Old and New Testaments with a little nod to what is called the Apocrypha, and which is accepted by Anglicans as though not uh, useful for f- founding doctrine, good for direction of life. In other words, we can guide our lives, if you like, by the Apocrypha. Um, but otherwise the text is kept fairly clear. Having come to ministry from work in the theater, specifically work in opera, where the texts, both musical and and verbal, do not invite a great deal of improvisation in performance conditions, um, I tend to take a high regard of a text, we regard it as in fact nothing less than sacred in the production of opera and the holy trinity of the conductor, the director and the designer or design team are urged to treat the text with reverence, never change a word or a note of it, but also assume that it is always susceptible to new meaning. The text can always yield new insight even within the frame of what is written And that is the secret, which I've simply carried over to um, an environment which often actually seems to have less reverence for the text, oddly enough, and um, also less reverence for the idea that the text is susceptible to truly finding new meaning without forcing the issue. It's a hermeneutic problem, and it's one of the most interesting problems we have. Now, the feasts that we would assign to Mary uh, vary and they vary in number, depending, uh, if you like, where you are in the family of the community of God. Um, the feast that is set aside for today is the feast of the conception of Mary. Not the conception of Jesus, the feast for the conception of Mary, and not just the feast for the conception of Mary, but the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, not of Jesus, but of Mary. Now, if you've looked in scripture to try to find out even who on earth Mary's parents were, you will be doing well, and you'll be still looking, I imagine, unless someone of you can disavow me. And yet we have names for them that have come along with time. But as I work through this process and try to find where in the text a lot of our information comes from, Let's just say I'm still looking. It's not a it's not now that is not a judgment, it's just a statement of fact. But it is um, a matter then of working in the attitude that we have to marry, a rather useful person, if you like, in the whole uh story of salvation. We might even say indispensable. I even like to say, even though she didn't write the letter to the Galatians, Mary is not chopped liver by any means. There would be no letter to the Galatians without her model of what real discipleship is for her courage, enormous courage, and her willingness to take on loss and a very uncertain future. At least that's what the text gives us. But I am going to try to trace a few of these celebrations back to their origin And um, in the process, try to, if you like, redeem a little bit for myself um, the value of Mary. And I say this because, intuitively speaking, I put a high value on Mary. I am, in fact, a priest associate of the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham in England, which is the Church of England, but it is a shrine dedicated to the cultivation of Mary, and it's a very big and very important shrine. But I also, let's get due diligence and and, uh, truth and advertising out of the way, I also find that the Mary who exists within the strictest understanding of the texts in the Bible comes off a lot more worthy of devotion than the layers of plaster and gilt paint and plaster and gilt paint that have been uh, with which she has been I think entombed so that's a good way to start this whole thing off now the veneration started early this is Irenaeus of Lyon pretty early on the game and his own credentials are pretty impressive to speak for scripture he says of Mary she being obedient became the cause for salvation You can look at cause in whichever way you wish, for herself and for the whole human race. He goes on. And I'm sorry for the size of the type. This is my doing, and I'm still learning to read it out loud. Because this is important to listen to. There's a theological core to this, which actually is hugely important. Mary is a test case, but it applies to all of us, and we're going to get there. Do we cast blame on God... Because we were not made gods from the beginning, but were at first created merely as men, that's the language of this translation, and then later as gods. First as human beings and later as gods. This is what Irenaeus is saying. He knows the text of scripture very well. Although God has adopted this course out of his pure benevolence, that no one may charge him with discrimination or stinginess, he declares, I have said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. For it was necessary at first that nature be exhibited, then after that, what was mortal would be conquered and swallowed up in immortality. Then this is the quote we hear in various forms from different early fathers and mothers of the church. God became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. God became human so humans could become God. That is the plain language of the early church. I put it on a little diagram then, if you like, to give it at least a spatial sense. There's a sense of descent, of coming down, God became what we are, a descent, God condescending, as he does in Calvin's words, to take on human flesh, and we, if you like, ascending, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself, not just godly, not just godlike, but in some mysterious sense, truly divine, shot through with a divinity that is not of ourselves at all. The two concepts that we are familiar with, uh, and they're both resolutely accepted in Anglican history from this period. Teosis at the top, or fullness is not the translation at all. It's my, um, my, my gloss on it. It really just means God, like divinized, if you like. And kenosis at the bottom, which really means emptied, uh, depleted of your, emptied of of whatever it is you have. The concepts are found in the two two two-sevens in scripture, Philippians 2-7, and then by implication Ephesians 2-7. The word kenosis never appears in scripture, but the word ekenosin used in Philippians 2-7 is saying Jesus made himself, or he emptied himself, he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself. One's the NIV, the other the NRSV, using the verb form keno, keno, to empty, and to empty out. Uh, the word kenosis occurs five times in Scripture, Romans 4.14, 1 Corinthians 1.17, 9.15, 2 Corinthians 9, 3 Philippians 2, seven in which Jesus is said to have emptied himself, which is the starting point of Christian ideas of kenosis. John the Baptist displayed the attitude when he said of Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. We'll tease this out. Theosis never occurs, as far as I know, in scripture. And we have to draw from Athanasius, who wrote, um, he was incarnate that we might be made God. I won't read the Greek. He writes, at length in English, a sure warrant for looking forward with hope to deification of human nature is provided by the incarnation of God. God poured himself into a human body that he might draw us body and soul to himself in the new creation provided by the incarnation of God, which makes man God to the same degree as God himself became man. Let us become the image of the one whole God bearing nothing earthly in ourselves, so that we may consort with God and become gods, receiving from God our existence as gods, uppercase, lowercase, for it is clear that he who became man without sin will divinize human nature without changing it into the divine nature and will raise it up for his own sake to the same degree as he lowered himself, for man's, for humanity's sake. They're beginning to do the philosophical work here now of defining terms, and this work becomes an enormous and open project to this day. The text here, though it never alludes to it, starting in Ephesians 2, 4 and going on, it's a wonderful text. It will make all evangelicals full of joy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he uh, loved us, five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, good reformed doctrine, nothing we do for our salvation. We are dead. We do not reach a hand to receive the hand that is issued to us. Dead at the bottom of the stream, as R.C. Sproul said, may he rest in peace. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him into the heavenly places with Christ. This is as close as it gets, but this is where it's going. So that in the coming ages it might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, for by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own, but the gift of God. So I've made that point, and we're all on safe ground. What is it then? that constitutes what we are dividing up in our theosis. What are the attributes of God? We're invited to subdivide them. And I do that on this little scheme. I apologize for the language, and I apologize for the subdivision. It's a poor thing but my own and an attempt to deal with the three standard attributes of God, which I used to challenge people. Omniscience, omnibenevolence, omnipotence. All strong, all knowing, all good. Pick two. Because if you can find a God who's doing all three at the same time, you're on his good side. Let me put it that way. We will experience in our lives, in this veil of tear, a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, but whose goodness, though there, eludes us. If we discover a God who is all-powerful and all-benevolent, as extreme liberalism suggests, we don't know what we're talking about. And we can have omniscience and omnibalevolence and no omnipotence, which I think is the default for most of us most of the time. Omniscience, what is it? The question it asks is what is a thing? What is truth? Is it or is it not? Is it or does it, it, does it seem? We're talking about the difference between truth and deceit, existence and non-existence, all crushed into one in this very brutal model of mind before which no data are possibly possible to stand. Everything crushes under my lovely simplistic structuralist models, at least as a three-part model. Omnibenevolence, what good is it? What's the use what good is it? Not what's the use, what's its value, what's its worth? Good evil, how does it feel? Maybe, but generally what is it or is it? Is it what it seems to be? What good is it? Is it as good as it feels or is it really quite evil and feels good? And finally, potence which is what might it become, if you like. Power is often, if you like, expressed in the use of the will, and the will and the desires are always aspiring towards something that is to come. Now, pretty crass, and I apologize to philosophers deeply for the vulgarity and the barbarity of of my mind, uh, dealing with concepts which people have really spent nights thinking about to great profit. Far better than mine. The secrets of those great men and women are safe with me. We're looking at kenosis though and arguing that in the world we are left with a lot of question marks. We don't know what is and what isn't. We don't know what's the good of anything and we don't know what on earth to do with the power we've been given. What's going to turn into something and what's going to not turn into anything. That's our situation. Now, If Jesus is coming down this spiral, and I'll leave it to you, is it fair to say that when he hits planet Earth, he's left his omnipotence, his omnibenevolence, and his omniscience behind? And I don't know if I have an answer, but I'll invite any of you to chime in. Is that a fair statement? That he simply surrendered all of those attributes? He doesn't always know what the future holds. He doesn't know the hour or the time, as he quite plainly says, shutting down 2,000 of years of speculation on the rapture. I wish, no, he says, no one knows what is coming. He has to be omnibenevolent or he's not God, but he throws some curves to our understanding of benevolence as God always does. Try aging. And having aging parents to sort through that try having young children who somehow seem to be searching and knitting together of some of their gifts to understand the depth of suffering with which we say our praises to god's benevolence and i don't doubt it it's a settled issue but we're also talking about the golden path between clear concepts and existential, lived out realities, and the one thing you learn working in the theater is that the clearer the concept is that you work with intellectually and the more rigorously you stick with it, the greater the emotional force of what you are doing. And there's nothing worse than being guided through it all by your nose and just picking this and going this way and that way. You end up with a lot of nothing. That difference between left and right brain and that we work it vigorously is crucial. I will get to Barry. So, Jesus' power, as he says again and again, is something he most definitely uses um, heuristically, I guess. At times, we would argue that don't suit him, but serve the bigger issue. He doesn't bring down legions of angels to save him from the cross. But he'll show miracles to pass the glory up to the Father. So if he's given up that... What happens then when we put the mother of Jesus into the mix? What does she bring? What does she get? What does she work with on this side of the story? Now that spine, starting at the bottom with today, celebrating the Immaculate Conception, a feast which really began to be celebrated really beyond the beginning of time, visibly in the 15th century, as it says below, and officially put into the record in the year 1854 by I think it's Pius the Ninth. I've lost my sheet with all the po sorry, no it's not. It's Pius the Twelfth um, who put that into the record. Uh, no, it's Pius the Ninth, it's the twelfth month, sorry. So he made the Immaculate Conception Dogma. That meant that Mary, for her entire time on earth, lived without sin because she was born without sin. Her parents conceived her Somehow, she was entered the womb without sin. Kind of like Jesus, you think. She did. You want a scriptural uh, justification for that? Good luck. But that's the dogma, and we'll get to how it came to be. Why her parents, whose names we don't know, didn't have to be made pure, and by infinite regress, you go back through the generations or the genealogy I have no knowledge. The, knowledge. the argument from the Vatican is, but of course she must have perfect pay, parents to be a sinless person. Utter rubbish. There's no necessity to that at all. I mean, like, why, you know, could you not argue both sides of? if you're going to use such a tweet? Anyway, we leave that. I've enjoyed this project, progress. So at uh, the beginning, someone who cannot sin, therefore omnibenevolent, I would argue she has no inclination, remember Augustine's logical square, which I cannot recall. Verbally, you know, but it's, it's saying non-potest, uh, it's, uh, I cannot, I can't sin, I can sin, I cannot not sin. Those are the contradictions. It goes like that. He's saying in heaven, we will not be able to sin in the new creation. We won't even want to. Here we can sin and we cannot sin. So what he's saying of Mary is she couldn't sin if she wanted to, which she doesn't. She lived an entire life in a godly state of omnibenevolence, of just pure goodness. She ended her life at the top with what is the most recent dogma we have, 1950. The assumption, which means in its purest form, that she doesn't die like a she goes straight up to heaven from her deathbed, body and soul, and is received into the heavenly courts. Because one who has lived so perfectly should not be besmirched by physical death. Jesus managed to do something with it, but not Mary. But the, 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 the fact is that she's living in a state of perpetual virginity as well, and this comes from early. Not only does she not know a man ever even when she gives birth her tissues if you like are simply uh, made susceptible to turning her her core there if you like into the birth canal and then the whole thing is knit back together as if it never happened and this is critical i mean there's a whole movement which is kind of saying we don't want this woman to be a woman at all if we can help it to but not like any women we know this is a This is a kind of ethereal person who is always wearing blue. Um, We've, in an attempt, had to try to reclaim it. So where there are gold circles, these are Anglican feasts. Our Lady of Walsingham is straddling an interesting place and I admire them for that. We celebrate on the 15th of August her Dormition, but we don't call it the Assumption, if you like. We also celebrate today, if we choose, in the Anglican uh, Anglican Communion, just a a glorious day for Mary, to celebrate Mary in all her wonder, without getting into the tricky business of um, these conceptions. Now, I don't know which is more perplexing, and maybe none of these things are perplexing to you. Um, Sorry, I'm looking through here for some useful piece of paper, which has some information in it. Yeah, yes? Um, do Catholic theologians ever try to understand how Jesus can be holy human if his mother must be holy human? They're selective um, about how they, they're, they're wonder, they work in a beautiful philosophical system. The best I can, and I look at the catechism, and the best I can, I can, I can say is they make, create larger and larger and more inclusive categories Which simply absorb, ingest different, like the Pac Man, they ingest significant differences and turn contradictions into lovely, pliable hinge joints. And they never return to further define their terms. They cannot, no, it's it's a noble concept. They got to stick with what they've got somehow. Fortunately, tradition is so generous and diverse. That you can find a precedent for anything you want in tradition. And they do. I'm being a little cheeky, because they're far wiser so I mean, I'm no flipping Carl Rahner, let's get this straight. But and I admire the project they have, you know. But but it it it's a place that leaves us stuck with our little text at times, just literally saying, as I've said every day, I've worked on this, how do they get this? What what if, what is what is this? So we're going on because I'm plowing through this whole time. We won't get to sing our songs, and the songs are very nice about Mary. So, Pope Pius the 12th, 1950, Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Pope Pius the 9th, 1854, Mary at her conception was preserved immaculate from original sin, perpetual virginity of Mary from the third century. And the notion of the mother of God, which we will maybe get to later. Now, I'm going to move on. So we lose the mother of Jesus, and we begin to get the mother of God. This thing, which looks like a sort of prom queen from recent times, is actually a statue from, um, I think, I'm told 1620, I have my doubts, that's got to be. Someone who knows Barbie has had to have a hand at restoring that thing. But it's, it's a Church of the Assumption in Malta. But she, I, I mean, she's very beautiful. And, and there she is with the crown. Mary becomes the Teotokos, the God-bearer, which of course she is. And she becomes a new, assumes a, a vast array of possible um, attributes as well. She is the mother of the, the queen of heaven, the queen of this, the queen of that. Now. At the time in which that dogma was promulgated, um, we're gonna bring my friend in here who is a wonderful soul. I still have my issues with the way he takes on Christianity, but as the, his father was the head of the Munster in Zurich, the main Calvinist church, he had six Calvinist pastors in his family. He was totally immersed in Reformed theology and his life's work is a process of dealing with Reformed theology, Reformed Christianity, if you like. The fact that he writes fluently in Latin, Greek, classical Greek, and writes all of that into his works, assuming that any educated person will not need to translate any of those things into English, shows that he belongs to a different era of scholarship. But when the Pope did this, he wrote in letters of the time The solemn proclamation of the Assumptio Mariae, that's the the, the, uh, which we have experienced in our own day, is an example of the way symbols develop through the ages. The impelling motif behind it did not come from the ecclesial authorities, who had given clear proof of their hesitation by postponing the declaration for nearly 100 years, but from the Catholic masses, he means the masses of humanity, who have insisted more and more vehemently on this development. Their impatience is at bottom, the urge of the archetype to realize itself. He goes on about archetypes. Um, He sees this as a wonderful movement of something from the ground up, something that is motivated by the population. And I read a quote from 2010 from Pope Benedict XVI. And this is the tone, Mary, of a lot of the the philosophical argument, who called the people of God the teacher that goes first. (laughs) Yeah, Just so absolutely consistent with the way that church works. The teacher that goes first and stated, quote, faith, both in the Immaculate Conception and in the bodily Assumption of the Virgin, this is 2010, was already present in the people of God. That's where the Catholic Church gets everything, from the grassroots, from the people of God. Well, theology had not yet found the key to interpreting it in the totality of the doctrine of the faith. It was there, but we didn't see it. Good, this hey, I can live with this. The people of God, therefore, precede theologians. And this is all thanks to that supernatural sensus fide, the sense of faith, namely, that capacity infused by the Holy Spirit. That qualifies us to embrace the reality of the faith with humility of heart and mind. And this is, I can't. Argue, how can you disagree with any of this? It's beautiful. Humility of heart and mind. In this sense, the people of God is that quote teacher that goes first unquote, and must then be more deeply examined and intellectually accepted by theology. I love you, Bennett. I used to have the T-shirt, literally, that by, in which Cardinal Ratzinger, of which I was a member of his fans club, said, truth is not a majority opinion. And when he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, a.k.a. the Inquisition, and running people like Anthony Mello out of town or Hans Kung on a rail, where was this kind of sense of dialogue? I don't know, and I don't criticize him for it. But I look at it and I think, okay, where, where... Where do we go with this? She being obedient, now I read in a different way, became the cause, the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human. Take whole human race whichever way you want. You it's a subtle thing. You read the same text suddenly from a strong perspective. Now, I'm not gonna do any of this because I haven't given us time and that's all right. I was gonna bring in these witnesses, two artists, um, Tilman Riem um, Schneider, the sculptor from the 16th century, um, and no one artist, three compo- two composers, and a writer: Heinrich Schütz at the bottom, Paul Hindemith, and our friend um, von, uh, Rilke, Maria, Reiner, Maria Rilke. We might look at a little bit of Riemann Schneider, though, to help make my case. He's working around 1500. He is a Catholic carver. And he's beginning a process of making these beautiful altar pieces. He works in stone. He's doing a lot of work with linden wood. This is one of the Last Supper. And he's going through a time in which he is relinquishing the custom of covering wood carving with a kind of paste and then painting the paste. And just looking at the wood. This is an effigy for a bishop. Quite realistic. There's a psychological realism to what he does. And I like to think of this as Mary's family when she's about the age of the Annunciation. If that's Joachim or whatever he is and there's Anna on the other side. The faces are beautiful, they're idealized faces and yet the attention to psychological reality I think in his work is stunning. So this is the top of that carving of the assumption of Mary, which I'll just plow through. These are the usual symbols of Mary, the Barbie doll symbol the French especially cultivate an absolutely blank affect. You can't read any emotion out of these Marys. Now go to Wheaton Religious and you get a bunch of absolutely blank Marys. They feel nothing, they are totally impassive. Why? So you and I can project whatever we want onto them. But they're like little dolls. The one on the left is at least a pretty doll and looks sweet. To it, this is Riemenschneider's car- carving of the The Merry Morning at the Foot of the Cross, which is a whole different sense. Again, very idealized face. He's just going with a few details of the musculature, but you have no doubt that what is being expressed there. This is one of his own Madonnas, and she's crowned, as you can see. But I read so much feeling into that face, which I don't see. Another one from a later time. You sense a depth, a strength, a character, a firmness of purpose. And a deep sadness to this Mary, who has known what kenosis is, who got into this job, not by a promise of a, of a direct route to heaven and no pain, but she gets plenty of pain, but the promise that she didn't know where this was going when she stepped in, because she was a human being, not someone with divine knowledge. That's the whole of another very lovely Madonna. There's beauty there, but I've seen mothers that look like that, by the end of the day, too. (laughs) The set of the mouth and the jaw is the wisdom that just comes from perseverance and going back. And at the same time, it just glows with a kind of a warmth. So there's a humanity in what he's doing. Shoots, no, it takes too long. We don't need it. We do. We could listen to that another day. And uh, we could listen to a little of that, but I think we're gonna do without that because it's 1044, too. So I'm going to look at this, however, and just run through this quickly because there's some words here. The name of the Theotokos, God-bearer, that is Mother of God, contains the whole history of the divine economy in this world. That's St. John of Damascus, the glories of Mary for the sake of her son. I don't know the date on this. I didn't get a lot of this stuff finished. So she contains it. She bears it within her, obviously, but in any other way. This is Cardinal Newman, now a, a saint, if you like, or on his way. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's his work. It's not John of Damascus's. Well, she suffered more keen and intimate anguish at our Lord's Passion. Actually, when he wrote this, he was having to defend the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption to Anglicans, of which he was one. And he does a good job of it. She suffered more keen and intimate anguish at our Lord's passion and crucifixion by reason of being his mother, not in the body, but in the soul. She suffered a fellow passion. She was crucified with him. The spear that pierced his breast pierced her through. I like the sound of this. There's a bit of the Anglican left in him. So... She morphs into this in his world. The sword of which it is prophesied that she will suffer, she suffers. The complete kenosis includes the death of God. The loss of having a God altogether. We're going to the other extreme now. Not just dragging everything upstairs, saying just breathe in God be happy, I remember my Pentecostal days. You're in a trance until something actually has to happen with somebody else, then it all goes to hell. But if you're worshiping, it's joy. You know, you just want to stay there and float. You're on this escalator going up all the time until the dog barks or something. And he's saying our friend Wolfgang Gigerich, who is a critic of Jung, on all of Jung's theology, because Jung just loved the idea of this symbol being so strong. He's saying, you forgot the whole point of Jesus. It's his emptying of his God, the fact that he suffers as God truly suffers now. If Jesus is the face of the God we see who is the Father, as he says, then we deal with a God who suffers more than we can imagine every time we turn away from him. Every time there's suffering on this planet, a God who for his own reasons suffers beyond our comprehension because he loves us and this planet and this universe beyond our comprehension. He took his impassivity and checked it at the door, which is what he gets to do. And we've lived with this ghastly platonic God for 2,000 years. Will someone deliver us from this impassive? clockmaker God for once and for all, who's all power. He's inviting us to see the God of Christ, like the bridegroom who's jilted in the Old Testament. And only if he has lost his God as Jesus on the cross when he cries out, has he really unreservedly become nothing but human and emptied his cup fully. I think there's something to that. I think we have to take, we're free to take the text any way we want. But when we look at Advent as being a state of innocence, reaching out to those who do not know Jesus. And everything we do, even in our liturgy, pushes us to that place. Eucharistic prayer is very short on purpose. A lot of things like the epiclesis are simply smudged over. The confession and absolution are dealt with in the most terse formal ways to rob us of those things in the service that we hang on to to get us through, to say, can we put ourselves out in a world outside that is looking for a sign somewhere in the sky of someone who loves them and who's going to forgive them? If we had done more of that with Jesus, we wouldn't need Mary, would we? But I think we took so much trouble to make Jesus himself the judge, and I don't have those images of the medieval church, that we ended up, like ourselves, either making a Jesus who simply has no power at all, but is like a kind of Santa Claus, or simply bypassing him to someone who'll listen. So this is maybe the clue to it, the kenosis piece, and I guess what I would say, and then there's still time to talk because we always start 10 minutes late and you can push back. Well, we do. I don't think there's any more pictures and we'll play the music some other time. Um, if kenosis is the, the, the clue to all of this stuff, coming to that place of emptying, of being at the end of your rope, of saying there is no good in me, there is nothing I can do for my salvation It has to be given as a gift from beyond, 100% pure gift. My heart has to be changed from outside me for any of this miracle to happen. It's not a matter of making my love suddenly worthy of God's love by some infusion. The infusion, forget it. Grace is imparted from outside to the undeserved. God loves those who did not love him first. He loved us first. He didn't wait for us to do our spiritual uh, exercises and get our act together through some kind of project where he could say, oh no, I think you might have something in you. He loved the unlovely, and that's the secret of our faith. That's the only place we have any consolation and any confidence at all. I think I've said enough, but I'll leave you with there. So if we can find a Mary who is... um, the one who suffers at least half as much as scripture says. I think we can find our way to Jesus, I think very nicely through all that. So I'll shut up, you can respond, you really must because we can't leave it here. This is supposed to be a conversation among reformed Catholics. <laughs> I'm sorry, speak, speak. Okay, guys, it can't. I know it was bad but don't tell me it was that bad. Okay, Mary, yes, speak.
1: right so they've taken that and kind of, it's like almost the, um, you know, he could, couldn't be God. It, it couldn't be God, 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 right, right. Yeah, it could be God who's born a human mother. Right. So, and that was why they were really arguing about that whole phrase. So they've kind of just taken that and then saying, well, the mother wasn't really human. She was somehow mine. Right? Just, I, I, and and you know, what...
0: Well, the other mischievous question I'll ask too, following the Orthodox Church whose atonement, I mean, atonement is wide open right now. That's the big question in the church. There's no necessity to a lot of the medieval, the feudal German doctrines, English doctrines. What I himself. Great right if you lived in the feudal age in which it was all of an honor. You know, when you, you went in to see the Lord and you put your hands like this and bow, to show that you wouldn't go for your sword. You pushed the throne against the wall because that's where the Lord said. You knelt and you bowed and you went out like this, which became the practice in the church thanks to the Holy Roman Empire, which was none of the above. So the kenosis idea, which is, I think, absolutely, in some institutions of learning, I believe, a forbidden doctrine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I look at Mary and I think, if God's doing it, filling the emptiness with his wholeness. I'm going to be bold and be the the devil's disciple and say, why the heck not that asset of theosis? It's not my virtue, but if it's God's, that I can bear. In other words, why not exactly, to go back to what you said, who better to have in your cracked clay cup or pot that indefinable treasure than fallible human beings who are given nothing less than that eternal treasure. Um, but I don't know, I, I don't, it's, this is, I'm out of my depth. You guys, I can release you soon if you want. But but please push back. I know it's so too crass and coarse. But, but to me these are, there may be applicable struggles to a lot of that goes on in our, in our spiritualities and the way we live, yes? Well, if I can
1: just, my, my for a <laughs>
0: Go for it you're free're you're, you're in a safe I place. F- place. Right. Abba's uh, original sin,
1: which is the Orthodox doctrine, then suddenly these, I feel like these problems kind of melt away, right? Because then you, you don't have to worry about, oh, how did Jesus have be been sinless when Mary wasn't sinless? It's, well, Mary is purified by bearing God. It's the, the she was united with God as soon as he was in her womb, right? So, right.
0: some sense if we receive the holy spirit from my pentecostal days is that not at least a kind of trope of what the incarnation is all about and i remember at regent even from good solid evangelicals constantly giving having written on my papers isn't this a little too incarnational you know and it was a fair call but the question is I mean, I hear what you're saying. If sin is, is sin then a matter of inclination, I guess I would ask, in that understanding, or a matter of action? I know in terms of the text that we have, it's saying he did not sin, but he was tempted as we are. So it implies it's a behaviorist thing, the, the scripture. And that if you don't do it, you can go through life festering with whatever you want, pouring out of your eyeballs, you know, as long as you, you keep your hands to yourself. I, I can't read that as, a, as at all a useful... I mean, that's not your thing, I'm caricaturing it, but there has to be something, I want to say, of privation, of sterasis. what's the word, of not having, no, it's not a positive fly in the ointment, but there has to be some lack in the human being, in the human Mary, which makes Jesus human. human. There has to be a lack that Jesus chooses, something he chooses to give up, Um, and I don't know what it is. But that seems to be part of what we would call an incomplete nature, if not positively sinful. Yes, Rich Baker.
1: Well, I'm working with the idea of restoration. And I don't look at it coming. It does say, uh, I, when I see him, I should be like
0: Right. Right, right. I wish I could, even Luther says, and in, in many places, and behold, you are all Christs, you are all little Christs, running around. I mean, it's that plain. Well, Christ is called the second Right. So that's kind of... <laughs> well, his own disciple. Well, his disciples, there's really not much, they don't get resurrected. And remember, Agairo, in that one place, his middle deponent, where it says, he resurrected himself. It's not just he was resurrected. You can read it either way. I remember hearing that in a Greek class and it just blew my, my lid. It was like, so, but we don't get to do that. But we, he will work through us with miracles, with all the things that he did in that sense. I'm not susceptible to that, yeah. I'll go ahead. James so. Oh, sure. It's yeah, no, sorry, James, I didn't see no, it's, yeah.
1: It seems that there, the, there's a problem about running into a conflict between the sort of Augustinian and Irenaean vision of creation and whether we have a sort of integral creation that is pristine in Augustine that we sort of fall away from, or whether in right. Irenaeus there's a sort of trajectory. Right. And it seems right. that, like, the Catholic position is sort the Augustinian tradition going, and it just seems to me that Protestantism is more compatible with
0: Ibaneus. That, that's a beautiful thought, though it's hard to exercise Augustine, even if one wanted to. <laughs> but but yeah, is, is, is was the original creation just a work, in, a work in travail, a sign of something better to be made in, in a dynamic process? Well, Right. So there was right. all, there had to be already been privation before
1: the fall. Right. So that's why it seems to me that the plan was always humans were created imperfect. right? You don't know why Satan was able to cast those shadow of us, we just know he was. Humans were created in perfect, the fall just shows that our the imperfection is there. So the, right. the incarnation to always was a the plan, because God
0: always wanted us to be, right. Right. Right, right. Right. Well let us continue that conversation. Thank you for humoring me in my in my process. <laughs>